Hello friends, my name is Jumont McGowan and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation, who are a US-based non-profit organization. If you're curious, go to their website, epicprojects.org. My guest today is Peggy Stern. Peggy Stern is an Academy Award-winning film producer and director who has been working for more than 30 years in the film industry. She is the founder and CEO of Dyslexiaville Incorporated and has run Glad Eyes Films, a transmedia production company since 1985. Her dyslexia led her to filmmaking and animation at a young age. In March 2006, Stern won the Oscar for Best Animated Short for the brilliant The Moon and the Sun, starring John Turturro. Stern has produced for PBS, HBO, and Teachers College at Columbia University, the National PTA, and National YWCA, amongst others. In her role as Dyslexiaville's founder, Stern engages with children, parents, and teachers, and speaks at conferences across the United States. She received her BA from Harvard University, and her senior thesis film, Stephanie, was turned into a PBS documentary special and broadcast nationally. As always, this is a podcast to support the brilliant work of the Dyslexia Foundation. Their mission is to unlock the full potential of dyslexic people so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and they teach them to read for free. And they also have a free online screening tool which you can use to assess yourself or a loved one for dyslexia. As you will hear, Peggy is an incredibly humble person and she's clearly very moved by the profundity of the work that she does with Dyslexiaville and the work she does in particular with children and young adults. We talk about all of her work and her many achievements in this episode. Um, she's a wonderful listen and we hope you enjoy. All right, welcome. Welcome to you, Peggy. How are you? I am good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. I'm very well. So we were chatting just before we we started the recording um, about um, uh, the, the the issue of, of of anger came up and luck as well. Um, that you were carrying as a child anger around, you know, um, prior to having a diagnosis of your dyslexia, um, frustration, which is so familiar to all dyslexics, and then the great luck that you had given. Um, the, the position of your parents and, and, and uh, your grandmother. Yeah, I mean, I think about it all the time, really, because I'm in this field now doing work with kids who have learning differences. So, you know, the range of when someone gets identified, gets intervention, I mean, that has such impact on all of our lives, right? Massive. And so yeah. in my case, back in really like the early 1960s, my grandmother happened to be in the field of education and special education. Mm. So she identified early that I had a problem. I mean, at five, which was, it's kind of unheard of even today. I mean, that doesn't happen. Yeah. But she, you know, sort of told my parents, look, I want to have her go and meet this colleague. And the colleague later who became my mentor and tutor said she thought my grandmother was being a hovering, ridiculous 
you know, overprotective <laughs> grandmother and yeah. figured, you know, she'd meet me and just tell my grandmother, look, she's only five, chill yeah. out, you know, see what happens. But when she met me, she quickly realized that I clearly had, a, you know, dyslexia. And so mm. I had a proper evaluation. And then she became my tutor. Um, her name was Dorothy. And I would go three times a week. And I went to school, but then I would go and see her for a few hours. And, you know, she basically said, I, I mean, at that point, I wasn't so frustrated. I knew that I was dyslexic, but no one in my school knew what to make of that and mm. were trained or did anything differently in how they taught me. So by the time I got to her at 3.30 in the afternoon, having been at school for many hours, I was so pissed off and frustrated mm. to have been, yeah. you know, basically not seen all day, right? And made to feel pretty stupid. Um, mm. And so she, you know, later, years later, when I asked her, what do you think would have happened to me if I hadn't had you? And she said, honestly, you would come to my house starting at a young age, so pissed off and angry and frustrated for what it was like for you to be in school. I think if you hadn't had me or someone like me, you would have ended up derailing acting out, getting into trouble, and very easily in jail. I mean, mm. you could have really gone down a bad path. So that was kind of <laughs> stark. And and I definitely remember that feeling of utter both anger, frustration, and um, shame. I mean, I did not tell my friends where I was going. I would make yeah. up, you know, oh, I have to visit my grandmother. Oh, I have ballet class. Oh, I have an extra rehearsal, you know. I was really ashamed. I never told them. And years later, you know, the Facebook comes into being. I am putting things out there about the project that I'm doing for kids with dyslexia. And a number of kids from my class, adults, sorry, from yeah. my class, wrote me and said, oh, my goodness, I was dyslexic too. I found out at such and such an age, I thought I was the only one in the whole school. We all felt that way, which is just so sad. Yeah, desperately sad. And you're, I mean, you're also saying that um, you still feel the American education system is, is, is still lagging behind um, and, and oh. not properly catering to dyslexic people in, in uh, classrooms. Absolutely. I mean, but as we were sort of talking briefly about before we started, is that I really think that the people that are the most exciting to me in this field in terms of their philosophy and thinking are those who are really pushing the concept of neurodiversity mm. so that we get away from just thinking, oh, we're going to help dyslexics. But we think, look, everyone is neurodiverse. There is no brain that's exactly the same. No one learns exactly the same. And mm. the concept of normal should be thrown out the window. You know, yeah. why do you send kids to school and then try to see who's normal in this room? You know, <laughs> and then there's people on one end or the other, you know, instead yeah. of everyone is neurodiverse. I have these adorable five-year-olds and I need to, you know, understand how they learn. And, you you know, the idea that that would cost a lot of money, I don't think is true because it's a concept. So yeah. if teachers were taught that from the beginning, you know, then I think it would start to follow to have curriculum that addressed that. And it's not as if everything would have to be taught differently to every child. I mean, it's not on that level of difference, but um, I think it would change the stigma. It would help the, the shame that kids feel because they would have much more of a sense of, oh, 
you know, Joey, who sits next to me, is really good at math, but I'm much better at art and mm. I'm really good at this. And so, I mean, because I feel like, I don't know about you, um, you know, for me, and that's why I got into the whole idea of social emotional learning in my project, is that even if you're getting the help and you ultimately, you know, you start to become a reader in the case of being dyslexic. And in my case, I became a reader, but my spelling uh, was atrocious to this day. Mm. It is atrocious. Mm. Um, but, Same. You, you know, yeah. Um, but, the, but the truth of it is that I still felt a lot of shame and I really felt stupid because things, though I was really good at some things, I, you always focus on what you're not good at, right? You know, I, I mean, that's what we all do. I'm sure as an actor, you've had this experience where 20 people can say you did an incredible performance and the one <laughs> person who gives you a criticism is what you mull over all night. You're like, what did I, you know, we all of focus course. on that. And so the negativity of feeling that um, you're struggling with this or that as a kid mm. is I think what weighs on you. Totally. I mean, there are so many things you've raised. Um, it, it occurs to me also that um, there's needless politicizing that's made out of people who learn differently. I mean, uh, at the moment, we have a contest uh, going on between two conservative um, politicians to see who will be the next prime minister, one of whom very recently in the last two days has said he'll make children continue doing maths until 18, maths and science. Um, and... You, you, obviously, he's he's signalling to his to his potential electorate that um, you know it's it's I don't know if it's the same in the states that there's a conservative viewpoint that like you know there are soft options there are pointless subjects you know art is pointless drama is pointless this is pointless you need science you need maths that's what you need you need a fin you know you need a strong financial backing and it completely diminishes the intelligence and and talents of so many people. I mean, I, I would have gained nothing from continuing maths until 18. So I think there's also a, a political element um, where people uh, diminish creative creativity and creative minds and how um, creative people work, um, which, which I think is, is hamstringing it a little bit and, and, and uh, skewing the conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, we all bear the scars as well of... of, of our schooling, don't we, of, of, of feeling like the shame, not feeling good enough, uh, not feeling like um, the things that we could bring to the party, which are incredibly valuable and not valued. Yeah, it's, it, it's absolutely all those things. And put your mind around this. In America, it's not as if it's... We have all these different states, right, where they have a certain amount of autonomy, so even if one state says, oh, no, we get it. We're not going to make everyone do math until they're 18. And we're going to have a more progressive educational approach, right? And, um, and you know, they start sort of revamping their curriculum and their educational approach such that that can happen. You can have another state which is banning books and telling everyone you have to, you know, do exactly, you know, what you were saying. And so it's incredibly complex here. And, yeah. and in that sense, I mean, there have been some progress with the idea of 
having core curriculum and trying to get certain things that every state needs to do. But within that, then there's different core curriculums that states can pick. I mean, it's yeah. really crazy. And, and that's why I feel like if the graduate schools of education could start at least creating a uniform approach and curriculum that doesn't have teaching, reading, and then special ed be, you know, one week in two years. I mean, that's what really happens. It's so brief that teachers get even exposed to understanding and teaching. Then it doesn't really matter what state you end up in, one would hope, because you'd have the awareness and you'd be looking out for the kids and you would hopefully be able to at least make some impact. But it can be really hard. You hear stories of teachers who, you know, realize in second grade that the the child probably has dyslexia. But in in most schools in the States, they don't even begin to test or try to, you know, evaluate kids until third grade, okay? Mm. So Mm. that means you've been in school for kindergarten, first, second, and then in third at some point. That's a lot of years where you've been struggling. And so this teacher was staying behind. She was a very young, new teacher. And she would stay behind, you know, two or three days a week working with this child just to try to help him because she had a big heart, you know? She didn't particularly have the training, but she could tell. And I mean, that's ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's not going to, you know, uh, and she felt so badly that there was not more that she could do. Um, So you multiply that times thousands and thousands of kids who are not getting what they need. And do you ever think, though, I mean, the other politicizing kind of issue is that And I've heard, you know, adult dyslexics sort of talk about this, is that in the scheme of issues out there, right, Mm, you mm. know, severe poverty, uh, child abuse, et cetera, right? Yes, yeah. It is hard sometimes, I think, for people to relate to, well, okay, so you struggled in school and you're not that great a speller or you're not Mm. that good. And how to help people both articulate if they're dyslexic or have other learning differences in a way that does help people understand, you know, and vice versa, how to create empathy, you know, among other people. Because, I mean, obviously, there are so many issues that, you know, we wish we could address all of them. But it doesn't mean that, you know, if we're going to rank the severity of things, I mean... I think the kids who have learning um, disabilities who don't get help definitely end up, as my you know tutor said, potentially in jail. And that's very true in our country. I don't know about you, but the statistics are shocking of the Absolutely. number of kids and people, adults in jail who, you know, are have really limited literacy skills. And when it's evaluated, they have a learning disability. And so, I mean, if we look at it that way, you know, then maybe people can understand more that the stakes are high. Absolutely. This is not just a feel-good issue. This is not just, oh, so it is really a literacy issue in the end. Completely, completely. I mean, it crosses so many social and economical fields. We've talked about this before. Um, The the statistics of... um, people in prison, people who end up on the street, mm. um, they have some form of learning difficulty. Um, 
and they are living with the shame of not feeling like they um they understand or they, they you know they 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 can they can work in a way that it keeps up with everybody else so it's it's a huge thing and and the reality is it uh it's dismissed as being like a middle-class affliction, you know, or, or you know, uh, it's a euphemism for being lazy, you know. Oh, my I, child's dyslexic. No, they need more time. They need a computer. They need this, they need that. Whereas, you know, you think about all the wasted potential of those people who went to prison or, you know, were on the street. If, our, our, as you say, um, our education system was rearranged in a way that wasn't massively uh, economically um, taxing for people, that everyone's potential could be utilized in a in a in a better way. That everyone could give to society the unique um, and um, and valued thing that they can that they can give, and not and it not be wasted. I mean, obviously, I don't think you have to be much of a conspiracy theorist to look at the private um, uh, jail system in America to see that there's lots of people who wouldn't like um, those people with learning difficulties helped because that's a lot of people that ain't going to be in their prison. That's going to be right. you know big business for them. Right. You know? And listen, there's big there's big business all around in this. I mean, mm. the publishing companies, right, who have made books that are used in curriculums, um, you know, they stand to lose a lot of money if things get revamped to be initially more around phonics, let's say, mm. and yeah. not the concept of, oh, everyone will just learn how to read, here are these lovely books, you know. Yeah. There's all kinds of powers at play, I think. Sure. And it yeah. is very, you know, political and it is very fraught with those issues. But it was interesting for me because when I, um, when I got, when I finished college and I had been luckily found film early on and photography initially, because I mean, the idea of really, you know, though I made it through, you know, having to write essays and do too much of things like that was very, Oh, please, no, I can't, yeah. you know. But, and, and you went to Harvard. I did, which, you know, the joke always is in my family, I would not get into Harvard now. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's definitely changed. But back then, right. I mean, there was more chance that I took a year off because I was very burnt out after high school. And uh -huh, yeah. I was able to do, you know, some interesting stuff. And I, um, and also kind of get my mental strength to kind of go on. Yeah. And honestly, I'm not sure. Anyway, obviously, I was very lucky to get into Harvard because of the name. But, you know, was it the best school for someone who struggles the way I did? Would I be better served in a smaller, you know, place with more? Probably. But in the long run, obviously, I found my way. And part of it was that I realized I needed to, you know, be in the art department and use that as my... Uh, you know, base. And when I graduated, um, I had made a little film because that was what we had to do as a thesis. And I thought, well, okay, I want to go do something about dyslexia, you know, because I, it had not been easy at Harvard. It's not as if they did anything. I didn't get extra time. I mean, we didn't have that and there were no computers. So just getting a paper done was horrible. Anyway, um, but obviously I was very, very lucky and I had the name, you know, of this institution now that I could use, which I think was really my crazily driven desire was that I was so tired of feeling stupid. And so I go to this conference, um, of an organization that still exists, actually, it has a new name, but it was at, you know, in some hotel in New York 
And all of these experts were there sitting around arguing about the labels and the names of how you should call things. You know, right. was it... And I was sitting there, I was thinking, is there any other dyslexic in this room? I mean, why are they spending all their time talking about this? And by the end of the afternoon, I thought, well, there is no way I can make a film about this because I'm utterly confused, first of all. I'm kind of pissed off that they're talking about me. You know, it's all these experts talking about us, sort of. And, And I thought, I'm way not a good enough filmmaker yet to even begin to approach this topic. And I just left it. And I did do other things around education always because that's where my biggest sort of empathy was, I think. And I did non-education topics. But, you know, fast forward, I had been doing film for decades and uh, I worked with an animator and we did this short animated documentary that won an Academy Award. And that, you know, opened doors. And my partner, who had made this very personal film, this animated short, said to me, all right, Peggy, it's your turn to do something personal. And I know what that is, he said. You know, you have opened up to me about your dyslexia, but you need to figure out something you can do around this topic. And that's how it started. And it was, I mean, a decade ago. It took me so long both to figure out my approach and to then get people to back it because I was being pretty maverick in how I was thinking of doing it. Um, and, you know, I, wa- I decided to ultimately use real kids who had learning differences as the actors. Mm. So that was the biggest, you know, sort of maverick move because that was not something that commercial television was going to do. You know, yeah. it was yeah. too off the beaten track. Anyway, all of that is to say that with all the help I got and all the different ways I actually did end up getting, you know, a very traditional education that had, I still was carrying huge amounts of baggage. Of course, of course. I mean, look, I, I, it's uh, remiss of me not to um, uh, give the name of the the documentary that you won a Academy Award for, which is, you know, The Moon and the Sun. Um, which was released in 2006. John Turturro uh, is one of the voices in it, um, who is uh, a personal favourite of mine, an incredible mm. actor. Um, it's too. on It's on YouTube. Um, it's about 28 minutes long. Um, we, uh, if you're happy with your blessing, we'll provide a link um, with our show notes for people to to, to watch it. Um, you might know John Turturro from Barton Fink, from um, uh, Oh Brother Art Thou?, uh, most recently, Batman, the new Batman film. Um, he's a, an incredible actor. And it's, as you say, it's an incredibly personal film um, uh, based on, he's the, he's the first generation immigrant and he's talking about his, to his father, his father's dying um, or has just died um, in the film. Um, not to spoil it too much. That's just that's the setup for people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's beautiful um, and, it's, and it's beautifully animated. Um, just before, you know, you, you, you're being very humble about things. You went to one of the most prestigious universities in the world, not only America. Obviously, found your your, your voice creatively, um, and and then and then produced this this film. And then from there, uh, I, I'm I'm going to assume the project you're talking about is uh, Super D Ville, which is um, the uh, uh, company that you're the CEO of as well. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> well, I'm, I'm the CEO because it was my idea. So I was yeah. able to put CEO after my name. It's very easy if it's your own project. Um, of course. Yeah. And, it, and it started out that I thought I was going to do a documentary where I wanted to follow people from all so-called walks of life. You know, someone who was in prison, someone who had been given all the kinds of help that you could ever need. And, you know, I would sort of follow them in real time over a year and weave together their stories. And I, you know, got some funding and I was starting to do it. And I would go and though network with different people to get, you know, advice. And I, it was really this one dad who was dyslexic and his son was dyslexic in, you know, about seven years old, his son. And we were talking about this documentary and how it might get shown on HBO and all this stuff. And he was like, you know, I mean, in reality, isn't that just going to go to all the people who already sort of know about this? I mean, it, it's that's who's watching, you know? Mm. And I'll tell you, he said, what amazes me is that I have my son in a special education school for kids with dyslexia, because obviously as a dyslexic, I knew early on what his problems were. We were on top of it. We got him there. But he comes home many afternoons very discouraged. And, you know, there I am. I can relate. I went through it, but I don't really know what to do with it. I wish there was something we could watch together. He and I could, you know, to, and it's like a, a light bulb went off. I mean, the cliche, because with the internet, I realized, wow, I could bypass the whole television thing and yeah. just come up with something that would immediately, you know, meet this need. And and that's what led me to rethink the whole project. I put the documentary aside and, you know, just thought, all right, well, there's no point in sticking with this if I really, my heart is not convinced that this is the way to go. And I thank this gentleman Dave, every day because it was like such an important comment. And, you know, it led me to think, well, if I could really meet the needs of some of these kids, you know, and make them as they're going through those early years, whether they've been identified or not, because it, it, even if they haven't been, they might see themselves in these videos and go, wow. I want to talk to my parents about this. I think I'm that kid, you know? Yeah. So yeah. that's how we ended up getting on the road that became Super Devil. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you can access it, you know, it's, um, uh, we'd, again, we're going to uh, put it onto the show notes for people to to look. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great tool and it's something I wish that I'd had when I was, when I was growing up because it is, it is true. There is absolute truth in if you can't uh, see it, you can't be it. Um, and, and having and seeing other young people as a child who are suffering as you are uh, when you feel so alone in a classroom is incredibly powerful. But our, I have to say that our um, you know, consistent sort of mission in how we approach it is that it's very positive mm. because we are really trying to, even if it, in a storyline, because they're all narratives, um, based on talking to the kids and a lot of, re you know, real life stories. But um, even if it starts with a kid feeling really badly about something and turning to their friends, because it very much promotes community, you yeah. know, that kids yeah. need to know that they have other peers who also have dyslexia. You can't think you're the only one, right? And so 
we always have the the arc be that there's positive ways to get through this, there's strategies, and it's done with humor and it's done through storytelling. But we very much are trying to model the idea of this is not a tragedy. This is not something, you know, that you need to be stuck in. This is something which... um, you know, with the help of your peers and with the help of advocating for yourself or verbalizing or letting out the feelings, you know, with all those things, you can really find your voice and a sense of of confidence in the areas that you have strengths in. So we have a very kind of hidden agenda, so to speak, behind how we created these stories. Um, and it's really exciting. I mean, because we launched literally a month before the pandemic started. (laughs) And we had, you know, a subscription. It's superdevil.com and people could just go. And it Mm -hmm. was a subscription model. And our goal was to get into schools and public schools, but also parents and tutors. Anyway, after a month into things where the pandemic was closed, you know, schools were closing and everything was going on, we just pivoted and we made everything free. We just said, this is a free resource. It's online. You can use it. And we ended up having over 3,500 users with no money. I mean, we didn't have any marketing budget. We're very low budget. And yeah. um, it was all word of mouth. And mm. it was so exciting. It really showed the need, you know. And it was parents and teachers. And, you know, it's not something that kids are supposed to find. It's not like a YouTube you know, it's supposed to be done with an adult because it's you watch the video and then there's a discussion and we have a discussion guide and mm. then there's a hands-on activity because the idea is a lot of them are art-based and it's kind of st- you know helping kids sort of internalize the ideas and they're on themes like confidence and um, procrastination, which is mm. something everyone often can relate to. <laughs> whether oh, big time. Um, self-advocacy, you know, learning to understand, you know, it's so. It, it's been the most fun thing I've worked on besides getting yeah. to work with John Turturro and Eli Wallach, which was mm. incredibly fun. Um, yeah. And the animator, John Canemaker, who is an you know, unbelievably inspiring artist. But, but just the kids that I've gotten to work with, and now we're doing middle school. We did elementary you know, for the littler kids, and now we're doing you know, preteens, which is such a hard age. And we shot this summer. And I mean, these kids were amazing. And they have such stories already, you know, of being in a school where they felt like they just hid in the corner because no one understood them and it was horrible. And eventually they moved to a new school where it's amazing because people know how to teach them. I mean, we're hearing the same stories that I was experiencing in the 60s. Yeah. That's how little the needle has moved. So, um, you know, I, that part of it is shocking. On the other hand, here you are doing a podcast, right? And so many things have changed. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that it's some of the most fulfilling work that you've, that you've applied yourself to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have... Well, first of all, I learned a lot, even just trying to do the documentary. I found that I wasn't in this more positive model. And I was just kind of having all these sad stories of people who had had really hard lives and hard times because of their dyslexia. And after a while, I was looking at the footage going, oh my gosh, all of these stories are kind of exactly the same. So even though I'm finding people from all different walks of life, so to speak, 
this is not going to be the most interesting documentary because you're going to just kind of keep hearing the same note of despair. Mm. Mm. And I started realizing, well, that's because that's how I feel about myself. You know, I'm stuck in still, you know, I don't tell people easily that I have dyslexia. I cover it up. I, you know, and I had to work through some of that and have some, you know, other adult dyslexics who were farther along than I was in their own sort of advocacy work or their activism around the topic say to me, you know, you need to put this whole thing in another way. You need to think about it differently. And mm. so it was, you know, it was almost sort of this own personal journey that got me through doing this um, filming to realize, no, wait a minute, I do have some strengths. And this strength, what they call the strength-based model now yeah. in education, um, I didn't really know about that. I didn't know about any of this. And I just started realizing, you know, uh, why do I undervalue those strengths so much? You know, my interpersonal skills or my ability to, in a documentary, get anyone to open up and tell, you know, all these things that I just took for granted, kind of. Yeah. So I then was able to sort of start working with these kids, look at them, not, you know, go for the positive and come up with what is super devil. And it was a journey. I mean, it really mm. was. And now, yes, it is so fulfilling. And what I love is that it's, I feel like a grandmother because the kids that I filmed with for the ones who were, you know, what we call third, fourth, and fifth grade, yeah. the elementary school ones, those kids are in college. And one of them worked with me this summer and he's absolutely oh, wow. brilliant, but he was, you know, a little 10-year-old when we started. And they are all really open and advocates and you know they they're just great role models for other people and so i uh, it's just very moving and wonderful and i feel so lucky to get to do this project and i mean we have to get go out there and get funding all the time and it's you know it isn't launched to the degree i want it to be yet because we are mm. getting into some schools we're getting there but it's slow because we're working against all the things you were talking about in education this yeah. is soft. Talk about art being soft. Yeah. Social emotional learning and trying to kind of help kids self-esteem. That's uh -huh. as soft as you can get. <laughs> yeah. That's like melting ice cream, you know? Big it time. is not considered a priority in many places. And there's not mm. necessarily funding and you know, I mean I wish a foundation somebody would come along and just give us enough money to do this, make them all the way through high school, the episodes, that's what we would like to do. Um, possibly even young adults, because I think that's an issue for yeah. many people going out into the workforce. So let's say we, but but could underwrite it so that we could just give it away for free. Mm. I mean, I would love that, but we can't do that unless we have funding to make them and survive. So we're in this catch-22 and we're, you know, working on trying to have this subscription model and... I think we'll we'll get there. I, I obviously have a staying power with this project because <laughs> yeah. it's taken as long as kids going from elementary school to college. Yeah, and it's clearly given you so much. I mean, that's an incredibly yeah. beautiful thing that uh, your own journey to um, fully embracing your innate gifts and strength and talent 
is what's meant you could then give birth, as it were, to this to this project, which is is clearly very successful. Um, and that, that's what me and me and my producer Rory have, have found with this. Like you know, yes, there are always things with our guests which are similar: the struggle, uh, the, the the lack of confidence. But then it's it's how their journey with um, the the thing they found success with, however they quantify success, um, then tells a different story, a unique story. You know, you, you, you've created um, a, a learning tool that gives um, children that, that confidence in their ability. Um, and, and we've talked to many, many different people about the things that they do. Um, and it's so important to let kids find that on their own because one of the funniest yes. things a little boy in the cast named Hudson said to me one day is he said, if one more person comes and tells me that Einstein was dyslexic. <laughs> I'm going to explode. He said, yeah. what good is that to me? I'm not Einstein. Yeah. And yes. I don't even know what I could possibly do that would be my strength. And he just like was ranting about this. And it was really funny, but it was there was a lot of truth in it. Because yes, that can inspire young people. And I've been in the room of a you know high school student with dyslexia as a poster of Einstein. I mean, mm. I'm not saying that it doesn't sometimes work. But for some kids who are still trying to find some sense that they have a strength, right? Yeah. It is yeah. really alienating almost because they just feel like, well, I'm sorry, but now you're telling me one other kid said, oh, so now it's not just bad enough to be dyslexic and struggle with reading and all the other academic things. But now you're telling me I have to figure out what I'm gifted at. Yeah. Like, what if I'm not, you know, I mean, now that mm. I have another pressure. <laughs> which was just so classically true that adults do tend to impose these things on kids. And the Completely. kids themselves need to find this all in their own way. And that's what we tried to create is ways that are very open-ended, that allow kids to sort of um, go on this journey of finding their own self-esteem and being in a place um, that they get to on their own. You know, yeah. not where it's imposed by, look at these posters. You're going to be like these successful people. Because yeah. that sort of means that everyone has to be famous. I mean, that's why yeah. you have a poster. You mm -hmm. know, you don't have posters of sort of average dyslexics who are train conductors, you know. Yeah. But that train conductor, if they're feeling good about themselves and they love trains and this is what they ended up doing, might be seriously happy. Yeah, well, that you is know? that is how they quantify success. I mean, you know, one of my favourite uh, quotes about this very subject in education in particular is by Einstein, and it has nothing to do with science. It's it's the classic, and I'm sure you've heard it. If you judge a fish by its ability mm -hmm. to climb a tree, you're always going to be disappointed. Right. And and that's that's what is constantly happening. You're you know, if you judge me on my ability to read the periodic table or do a math equation, it's not my skill set. You know, I'm right. I'm a fish trying trying to climb a tree. You know, right. put me put me into a pond. You know, put me in front of a camera or put me on a stage. It's a very very different thing. Right. And and that pressure, you know, it, it, is there. You know, what are you going to do? What is your gift that you're going to share that's going to help everybody? Is a pressure that you know um, should unify all human beings. Um, but you but we should be very mindful of how we help them get there. You know. That, that train conductor example you use is, is, a, is a beautiful example. That's how they quantify success. Brilliant. You know, yeah, we, need, we need good train conductors. And I actually am really glad you mentioned the word mindful because that's become, you know, mindfulness and meditation and all of that has become somewhat of a new 
bad mm. and you know but obviously it's ancient mm. it goes way way back and other cultures you know embraced it uh and have integrated it deeply into their fabric um but i actually really you know do embrace it and i mm. think that we have embedded in our curriculum um some wonderful things that involve mindfulness and helping kids take that pause take yeah. that moment you know our world is is going at such a fast pace and that's particularly hard for ADHD you know LD kids and often those things you know dyslexia and ADHD can go together yeah i mean it's just the overstimulation is in itself a problem and so one of the, you know, I've worked with lots of experts. I mean, our project is not just me coming up with an idea. I've clearly yeah. wanted to go learn and, and make it have, be grounded in research. Um, and, you know, someone recently said to me, you know, look, the truth is we should really now be looking at this as just who struggles with literacy. Mm. And some people are dyslexic. Some people, English might be their second language. Yeah. Some people might not have been exposed to language out of because of you know poverty and nobody was reading to them and those issues. Um, some people it can even be dialect issues of you know you grow up in a neighborhood where you speak English with a certain dialect, right? Yeah. Um, and your teachers are constantly yelling at you saying that's not how you say it, that's not how you talk. But in reality, that is it's their it's a language that they've grown up learning. And so then learning to read this other language called, you know, is different. The words look different. And so there's just so many ways of looking at this um, that I think is really powerful and mm. important. And that I do think the dyslexic community of activists and stuff, there's a range, right, of people who are very purist and yeah. want to look at it um, in a pretty narrow way. I mean, I that sounds derogatory. And I think it is. I'm saying that narrow isn't great. And yeah. I think by expanding the definition and, you know, it helps hopefully expand the net mm. so that we help more people. Yeah. And some of those might be dyslexics who didn't get an evaluation, right? Which in America costs a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't have screening in kindergarten yet in as a mandate. I mean, some schools do it, but that's rare. So I'm just saying that I do have some things that I think we need to shake up the active, you know, think about how we're going to do this and, you know, be sure that we're not just coming up with ideas that are for the middle class communities that can afford special tutors and expensive evaluations and stuff. I mean, because that's really, you know, that's narrow. And that's Completely. only and and those kids deserve all the help they can get as well. That was me, you know. Thank yeah. God. But we just need to make the the net as big as possible. We absolutely do. Um, Peggy, that is the perfect note on which to end. So I want to thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. We really appreciate it. There was so much uh, great stuff in there. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. I wish I could come and see you perform tonight, but. It would be a long plane ride. So <laughs> another time, another, another time. time. But lovely another meeting time. both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much.
You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with our guest this week, Peggy Stern. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support the charity or access its many services, go and visit dyslexia-help.org. This podcast was funded by the National Lottery Community Fund and Epic Projects, or the Ecumenical Project for International Cooperation. Epic is a US-based non-profit organization. Epic creates bonds among caring people devoted to solving global challenges of poverty, food insecurity, environmental degradation, human rights, and making peace. Please go and visit their website, epicprojects.org. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please go rate and subscribe. Leave us a little review even. It really helps the podcast grow.